and welcome back to The Restroom, the podcast about living well with chronic illness. I'm your host, Natasha Lippman. In today's episode, we're talking about recovery. As someone who's lived with chronic conditions since I was a child, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what recovery can mean. In our traditional cultural understanding of recovery, it's pretty linear, right? You get sick, you go to the doctor, they give you medication, perform an operation, or put you on a treatment regimen. Time passes and you get better. Like, you fully get back to how you were before you got sick. Or if you're one of the unlucky ones, you don't make it. But for so many people, there exists a medium place where you don't recover, but you keep living. But does recovery have to mean a total absence of ill health? A little while back, I stumbled across a teeny tiny book called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. I read the whole thing in one very short sitting and then excitedly messaged my producer, Philly, telling her I must interview its author, Dr. Gavin Francis. And I'm delighted to say that's exactly what this episode is. The book centres around the theme of recovery, and in this episode we explore what that means, especially for those of us with chronic or long-term health conditions. If recovery doesn't have to be about a total absence of ill health, what should we be thinking about? A big theme of the restroom is looking at how we can find ways to live with chronic illness, when so often the systems aren't set up to support us. Can we rethink what we mean by recovery, and what needs to change in order to give people, all people, the best opportunity to live well? To start, I asked Dr. Francis why he wrote the book. Like all GPs, like all um, healthcare professionals, clinicians have had a really very difficult time over the last couple of years with the pandemic. And it's been extraordinarily difficult to meet the needs of my patients. And one of the themes that was recurring again and again throughout this pandemic is how often I was having to talk to people about general principles of recovery not just from the effects of COVID-19, which of course can be significant and long-lasting, but also talking to people about how to recover from the damaging effects of repeated lockdowns and from all the difficulties that people were having because they couldn't access their normal healthcare because hospitals were so busy dealing with COVID. So those conversations were happening again and again and again, and I was thinking a lot too about how to recover from the pandemic as a society, not just as an individual, and decided to put all my thoughts and reflections and explorations of the theme into one place, one kind of short, quite accessible book, which would, would bring them together. Now, let's rewind briefly to 1948, when the founding constitution of the World Health Organization defined health as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease and infirmity. That's quite intense. Of course, science and medicine have come a long way since then, but Dr. Francis believes that part of the problem when it comes to recovery is that our aim is often unachievable. My own view of recovery and how I see patients managing to do well in terms of recovery is people have a much more supple and flexible interpretation of what that can mean. You know, my own view is that health isn't some kind of extreme that we have to strive towards to achieve. It's much more of a balance between lots of different elements of our lives and in different phases of life. That that balance will be different. It will be in different places and we'll have to use different capacities to achieve that balance. One of the most vivid memories I have from when my health bottomed out in my 20s was desperately trying to find somewhere to go to convalesce. For months, I'd been predominantly trapped within the lilac walls of my childhood bedroom, away from my friends, away from work, and left wondering what the rest of my life would be like if this was now my new normal. 
As is so often the case with worsening health and very little that the doctors could do at the time, my mental health suffered. I couldn't live like this and honestly, I didn't want to. During that time, I recall conversations that my mum had with my grandma about convalescent homes, a quiet place by the sea or in the countryside. I'd spend hours frantically googling, searching for a convalescent home I could escape to. I could find rehab centres for drug addiction and eating disorders, but short of going on a yoga retreat, I couldn't seem to find anything that was for someone in my situation and could get me away. It made me think about how, if I suddenly came into a huge amount of money, my dream would be to create a convalescent home for young people living with chronic illnesses. It would be somewhere they could go to rest and recover. Not in the traditional understanding of recovery, but to better get to grips with the challenges of their lives. They'd have access to a doctor and a physiotherapist and mental health support. It would be a place to get involved in gentle activities, somewhere beautiful that truly provided the opportunity to rest and find some peace. But that's a bit of a pipe dream, really. So I asked Dr. Francis how we can start recontextualizing recovery when you have a long-term condition that can't be cured and are trying to figure out how to build a new life with it. Well, there's a couple of things I can think of to say to start answering that question. One would be, do you know the word convalescence means to grow in strength? That's, it comes from a Latin root as well about building your abilities and your strength slowly up after an illness. And do you know, the reason I subtitled the book The Lost Art of Convalescence was because if we look back in medical history until the 1950s, essentially we had very few drugs at our disposal to treat most conditions. And so a much greater part of medicine was about um, resting and strengthening the body to be able to fight illness and to cope with illness. You know, we used to have convalescent hospitals, we had convalescent homes. So yeah, we had a completely different attitude really to the importance of convalescence. And you know, I don't want to go back to the old days. I'm not in any way nostalgic for an era before antibiotics. No chance. I wouldn't want to give up antibiotics. I wouldn't want to give up all the chemotherapies and the robotic surgeries and the DNA profiling that we've got nowadays. But I do think that in the rush to modern medicine, and the growth of the belief that all you need is the right prescription, we've lost something really important, which is about allowing adequate rest and slow rehabilitation. So that's the first way of answering your question. I think essentially the advent of new drugs, steroids, antibiotics, inhalers, all those antihistamines and antidepressants that all came along in the 1950s and 1960s has duped us into thinking that we just need the right drug. But actually, there's a huge amount to recovery and convalescence that's got nothing to do with drugs. And it's about allowing the body to become as strong as it can be and learning a new kind of language of the body, learning to understand your illness and the way your illness affects you in order to build towards a life with the greatest capacity that you can. Um, And so, yes, I would like to reinstitute that kind of attitude, at least in part, back into medicine, that it's not just all about the drugs. The second way of answering it was just there's a a wonderful philosopher of illness in Bristol that I quote in the book and talk about a professor of philosophy called Javi Carell. And Javi Carell has a a very rare lung condition, lymphangioliomyomatosis, or LAM she calls it for short. And this is a condition which can cause real debilitating breathlessness and very frightening deteriorations in which she's had to be rushed to hospital. And it's a condition that's essentially not amenable to treatment. There are some drugs that can slow its progression, but ultimately the 
people with end-stage LAM often end up having to have lung transplants. And she writes very beautifully about the idea of living well with illness, about how you have to trim your sails a little bit to the wind of the illness rather than expecting the wind to be able to die down and also about how she's had to recalibrate her expectations over the years and look for new places to find joy and hope in her daily life. And um, that's something that people like Javi, who who live with chronic illness, have had to learn on on their own. It wasn't particularly um, something that was taught to her or explained to her by, by rehabilitation clinicians. And she writes as well about how the difficulties she's had going through a hospital system that's tailored very much just towards attempting to cure and where the doctors and the nurses that she's seen when she has a condition that is not curable, some of them have had a tendency to kind of dismiss her because they say, well, your problem isn't curable. But there's still, with incurable conditions, there's all sorts of things that it's possible to do in order to help ease suffering and help people live with those kind of conditions. And she writes very beautifully about that. I really relate to this. I've so often felt as though I'm figuring everything out for myself as I go along, that so much about my health is very much in my own hands, and it's a heavy burden to carry. Why is it that society just isn't set up to help people with chronic and long-term conditions? It's a topic that seems to have gotten more coverage since the pandemic. More and more stories are coming out about the treatment, or in many cases, significant lack thereof, for patients recovering from COVID. For those of us who have been ill for many years, hearing these stories unfortunately doesn't come as a surprise. The lack of belief, the lack of recognition, the lack of care or treatment, the inability to rest, more on this in a bit, and the lack of support from employers. Recovery is just not supported for the majority of people and many people end up sicker than they would be if they were given the chance to recover. So is our system broken? And if so, how do we fix it? General practitioners are completely under the cosh at the moment because it's a very underfunded service. And before the pandemic, we only really had 10 minutes per patient. And now, just with all the difficulties of access and the backlogs of COVID, there's a lot of practices have become quite overwhelmed. But in general practice, I think we've always been a lot more aware of this than in some of the hospital specialties, that living with illness is a lot about recalibrating expectations and about setting achievable goals and finding ways of managing symptoms rather than always seeking after cure. So I would like that perspective to be much broader within medicine as a whole, including with my hospital colleagues. Rehabilitation physicians are wonderful. They're a wonderful resource and there's so few of them. So, you know, my patients that have got complicated multiple sclerosis or motor neuron disease or a whole host of variety of conditions currently incurable that I'm struggling to manage their difficulties. When I can call on a specialist rehab clinician, I find them a a magnificent source of advice and inspiration. And there's so few of them. So I would really like that specialty of rehabilitation medicine to be a much bigger specialty. I think we need a lot more uh, doctors and nurses that are specialists in rehab as well as physiotherapists. You know, the rehab hospital in Edinburgh near where I work is um, mostly physiotherapists. And lastly, you know, if you're giving me, if you're offering me a magic wand, my first wish of the magic wand would be to ask people to 
value healthcare more than they do, therefore prepared to tolerate the adequate taxation that would be required to fund the NHS the way that it needs to be. Um, you know, NHS is a magnificent system, but we spend about a third less on healthcare than the French do, than the Germans do. And because we spend a third less, or we're prepared to put a third less money into the system than our European uh, neighbours, we have a much less well-funded system. And so our system is creaking at the seams. So the first wave of the magic wand would be to encourage people to use their power at the ballot box to vote for the kind of NHS they want rather than just wishing for it. And the second would be, once we've got that expanded base of resources within the NHS, comparable to other European countries, I would like to see a greater emphasis put on community services. At the moment in the NHS, it's extremely um, it's extremely focused towards hospital services, which is fine because hospitals do very expensive procedures and they um, it's very expensive to keep people in hospital beds and to staff those wards properly. But there are you know, some more than 90% of the patient consultations in the NHS take place in general practice. And general practice receives about 8% of the funding. So that's just general practice. Before we get on to community physio, community mental health, occupational therapy, I mean, these services that work within the community are so underfunded so unbelievably underfunded. I think it's really quite scandalous. If you're wanting to develop a new type of cardiac valve, say, or you want to trial a new chemotherapy that might benefit um, a small number of people for a rare cancer, you can usually find that money in the NHS, which makes sense. You know, if I was the one with the rare cancer or I was the one that needed the unusual cardiac valve, I'd be delighted. But it does lead to this huge imbalance where the needs of a very few, if their treatment is dramatic in some way or tabloid friendly in some way get met whereas the needs of the thousands the hundreds of thousands of people who are stuck at home with difficulties and need community services ends up being largely forgotten or brushed aside so i see that most extraordinarily in the mental health sector where our community mental health services in scotland really are completely on their knees I also see it in terms of community re uh, rehab and community physiotherapy. People get a lot of input during their first year after a spinal injury, say, um, in a specialist spinal unit. But then once they're home, uh, they're all set up at home with hoists and carers and so on. The availability of any kind of ongoing specialist support drops off. And it's almost impossible for me to arrange specialist community support for people living with that kind of disability at home. And I think that's the wrong way around, really. I think we need to put far more emphasis into community support. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, the Passenger Assistance app by TransReport, which takes the time and fuss out of requesting disability assistance when you travel by train in the UK. Instead of sending emails that receive no response or waiting on hold for endless hours, with the Passenger Assistance app you can request assistance in just a few taps. Whether you need meeting at a train station, mobility assistance, or support getting safely on and off the train, you can do it all in the app. Just put in your journey details, if you're travelling with a mobility aid, and what assistance you need. With a profile, all your access considerations will be stored, saving you time as you don't have to repeat these each time you request assistance. Their trusted technology sends information about your journey straight to the train operator, where they'll arrange assistance for you. You'll then receive updates on the app and by email when your assistance is confirmed. 
The app itself has accessibility features, including different colour themes and is screen reader compatible. You can download the Passenger Assistance app now and it's available on iOS and Android. One of the subjects Dr. Francis talks about in the book, which I think is really interesting to consider, is nature. I asked him why he feels nature is so important when it comes to recovery. My um, old GP, the GP who was trained in the 1950s, who sent me to hospital with meningitis, he had to study botany as part of his medical school curriculum because, do you know, until quite recently, most medications came from plants. And I think that there was a strong understanding of the fact that human bodies, human beings, are part of nature. You know, we respond to nature. We, our medications all, until recently, came from nature. And then the paradigm or the way that medicine was understood for centuries and centuries before the modern era was all about humours and balance between different kinds of humours. And we can make fun of that perspective now because it is in some ways quite silly when you think about it with a knowledge of the scientific medicine we have now. But it also held at its centre this idea of balance and health as a balance, which is one very integral to visions of nature and of gardening too. And, you know, I'm convinced that doctors and nurses are more like gardeners than they are like mechanics, because just the same way as a gardener has to create the right environment for the garden to flourish, um, but nature does the work of the garden flourishing. The gardener doesn't actually grow it themselves. In the same way, in healthcare, we have to try and create the right environment for the body to heal itself. There's very, very few instances where healthcare providers go in and actually fix something. What they do is they create the environment for the body to fix itself. You know, even when you stitch a wound, um, it's the body that heals that wound, not the sutures. So I believe on one level, we've lost sight a little bit of how important nature in the natural world is for our understandings of the body and health. But on the other hand, and this is to sort of extend the discussion, I do believe that there's something very powerful about nature and natural settings in terms of making us feel better, not just for our mental health but for our bodily health too. Do you know, Florence Nightingale always insisted that you have a window that could open and the window looked out on something green, growing and alive. And they've done studies now to show that if you're in a hospital that does look out over something like a park, then you need less painkillers. That if you're in a horrible sort of closed-in, shuttered cubicle without windows that open. I think that's really interesting. It tells us something about our humanity in my own city, there's um, guided walks in some of the parks that are arranged for people with mental health problems that have great results. You know, they have better results in some cases than specific counselling because there's a kind of pleasure and a power in getting together with others and taking a walk through somewhere green, growing and alive. And so when I'm encouraging people along the path to recovery, I often try to encourage them to pay close attention to their environment just the way a gardener would have to pay very close attention to the soil, the direction of sunlight, how wet or dry the earth is. We need to think, we need to pay close attention to our own environment for healing. We need it to be as clean as we can make it. We need it to be quiet. We need to have access to sunlight. We need to have access to fresh air. All those things that the old convalescent hospitals took for granted, but which our modern hospitals seem to have forgotten. And, and I think they're quite hard to prove now because there's so few of those old hospitals. But um, there's no doubt that people feel better 
in those kinds of environments. And if medicine is anything, surely it's the art of making people feel better. <laughs> yeah, I would like to, to reinstitute as well a greater awareness of, of the importance of nature and the environment. This is something I've thought a lot about over the years. So many hospitals are just so clinical. And I know, obviously, they're clinics, but there's a coldness, a beigeness. There's no personality. The chairs are uncomfortable and made of cheap plastic. Many of them are old, dark and run down and don't feel like a conducive space to feel better. I don't doubt that they are, in fact, very clean spaces, but they often feel dirty to me as though you want to shower it all off when you get home. That might just be me, though. I always thought that fresh air, windows, greenery and some colour would make the whole experience feel so much less grim and so much more human. I've also realised over the last couple of years how much I underestimated the role of light and fresh air to how I'm feeling. Having spent many years in a darkened room, not leaving the flat for weeks on end, I now will go and stand or sit by a window and breathe in some fresh air and it really does lift something in me. In fact, a few Fridays ago we had such beautiful weather it was crisp and sunny, and I went and sat down on a bench outside my building, listening to a Naughties playlist on Spotify, and I was practically giddy afterwards. It felt so lovely, especially after the horrible storms that we'd had. My little detour aside, getting access to the right medical care, whether that includes a window with a view or not, shouldn't just be about having the support to be able to stay alive and function on a basic level within society. Surely that's the least we're entitled to. People living with chronic conditions deserve to live full, happy lives and to find purpose and meaning just like everyone else. But there often aren't things in place to support that, so people end up living in what occupational therapist Joe Southall calls survival mode. You can hear Joe talk about that more in our last episode, which is all about managing the boom and bust cycle that so many of us live with. We also need to be given the time and space to rest and recover, whatever we mean by recovery. We need permission from ourselves, our loved ones, our employers. We need permission from society. As Dr. Francis explains, there are many hurdles we currently face when it comes to this. There's a number of different things that's worth mentioning um, with regard to our attitude to rest and our attitude to work. I should say at the outset that we are social gregarious species as human beings you know and and some kind of engagement and activity definitely helps us you know we absolutely need rest but in the 19th century there was advocated this thing called the rest cure where people were basically ordered to bed for months on end and that in itself wasn't helpful either because you know it encourages the strength of your muscles to fade it encourages your social connections to wither and so i'm absolutely behind the raising the importance and emphasizing the importance of rest. I also have to add a caveat to that or a caution that, that it's really important to try to keep activity and mobility and engagement with, with, with life and with society going too. Otherwise, we can find ourselves very, very isolated and very weak. So that's the first thing to say, I suppose, about rest, how important it is, but also that, remember, health isn't an extreme, it's a balance. Of course, how much rest we need is very individual and depends on your condition and how it impacts you. In the context of living with a chronic condition, we need to remember that activity, mobility and engagement with life can look different for everyone. Because when we hear those terms, we often think, do things like a healthy person, but that doesn't have to be the case at all. It's about finding safe and sustainable ways for you to engage in these things, no matter where you're at with your symptoms. So if you've been bed-bound, sitting up in bed supported by pillows, starting with a few seconds at a time, is activity. 
If you struggle with cooking, sitting down at a table, chopping one vegetable and contributing towards a family meal is activity too. We talk about this a lot more in our movement and pacing series. Now, there's a huge barrier to people taking adequate rest, which is the kind of rise of the economy that we've got at the moment. We've got a very kind of gig economy where lots and lots of my patients don't have a proper contract, where they don't get access to adequate sick pay if they go off sick. And I speak to people regularly who I think need to rest more and longer, but who tell me they're not able to because of the way that their income will fall. And so one way we can approach that is by improving our legislation in terms of sickness benefits and the way we approach that. At the moment, we've got a really horrendous system, you know, where the examinations for sickness benefits are uh, contracted out to, a, I think it's a French company who does these assessments. And they're all kind of, it's, a, it's like a commercial company with targets and things. I mean, it's totally absurd. Like, how can you approach the idea of deciding whether somebody's too sick to work with a commercial target-driven company who has nothing to do with healthcare? Do you know, it's just, just staggers, beggars belief, really. So we need to change that. Absolutely. I think we need to try to get away from the idea that people who are on health benefits are in some way sort of scrounging off the state or in some ways having an easy life. Do you know, it's like it's not easy to live on um, sickness benefits. I don't know why the tabloids think it is. Do you know, it seems to me extraordinary too. And government studies themselves have found that only 1.7% of sickness benefits they looked into were discovered to be fraudulent. So 1.7%. And of those, a full third of the ones that turned out to be fraudulent were in genuine error. So we're talking about tiny, tiny numbers of people who might be construed as trying to kind of cheat the system. And the overwhelmingly massive majority of people on any kind of sickness benefits are in, in need of them, absolutely in need of them. And, you know, it's not about personal scrounging or personal benefits. It's about what kind of society we want to live in. Do you know, it's about, do we want to live in a society where people are made destitute because of the random arrival of an illness in their lives? Of course we don't. And I think that we need to make that much, much more prominent in our public discourse that sickness benefits are not about the individual. They're about the society that we want to build. And do you want to live in the kind of society where people end up completely destitute and impoverished because of what's essentially a misfortune. And that's a lovely, um, there was a lovely sort of summary of that, of the inception of the welfare state put together by a sociologist called T.H. Marshall. He described the, the NHS and Bevan's reforms in the 1940s as essentially being there to institute a safety net so that the community could pay for the misfortune of an individual, so that we could Because any of us might become ill at any moment and be unable to work. And so we need to build a society and a safety net that means we all pay a bit into a system so that we can draw from it if we have the misfortune of needing to draw from it. So I I do think we need a reorientation of the rhetoric around that to remind people it's not just about the individuals. There's hardly any fraud or gaming the system. And that you have to act as if you might become ill at any point. And all of us have to act and think as if we might become ill at any point because we can. And then we'll build a much fairer system, which has got a real supportive safety net for everyone. In his book, Dr. Francis dedicated a whole chapter to reimagining or rewriting your story. 
I asked him how we can apply this to living with a long-term condition that can't be fixed. Well, this was a chapter I wanted to put in to talk about the power of attitude and of the mind. And it's kind of dangerous territory because I would never like anybody to infer from anything I've written that I think recovery can be put down to simply a matter of attitude. That's absolutely not what I've written anywhere. But all the same, I'm fascinated by how our understanding of illness and the attitudes we take to illness have an unbelievably powerful hold over our own feelings and over our own sense of recovery. So a good example of that is the incredible and shown again and again power of placebos. So we know that placebos work very well. We know that red pills are better for acting as stimulants and painkillers. We know that blue and green pills seem to work better as sedatives and relaxants, even when they're just sugar pills. We know that capsule pills work better than tablet pills. And we haven't really got a good explanation of why this is the case, but it tells us something about the power of the mind. I really enjoy reading about the the books of um, a neurologist called Susanna O'Sullivan, who deals with largely with um, what are called functional illnesses. And she has campaigned for a long time against the idea of functional illnesses being perceived as in some way being problems of mental health. She says these are nothing to do with mental health problems. It's not a psychiatric problem. A functional problem is just as debilitating as a physical problem. But she's shown examples of patients she's known over the years who've, for example, experienced paralysis of the leg, but when they've had repeated scans and uh, even surgeries, nothing can be found wrong with the nerve that goes from the spine to the leg. And it's gradually become apparent that the patient had an understanding of anatomy, which meant the patient believed that a slip disc, say, was cutting the nerve to the leg. And that was where the paralysis came from. So it's amazing if you think about that. That's amazing. It means that the power of the mind in terms of its expectation has managed to cause a problem so severe that somebody couldn't walk. And that's an understanding and an expectation of the body rather than a reality of the body when you look down through a microscope or whether you look down through an MRI scan. And what it means for a neurologist like O'Sullivan is that actually the possibilities for treatment can be therefore much more optimistic. She's not in any way saying that this paralysis is going to be easy to overcome because it's all unconscious. It's not a conscious thing. What she's saying is that if the nerve had been cut, chances of improvement would be very, very poor, very low. It would be unlikely to improve that paralysis. But with this kind of starting point, that a paralysis has arisen through beliefs and expectations, there is a chance of improvement in order by by retraining the mind and by relearning what the capacities might possibly be. And that to me seems a really, really interesting example of how sometimes our beliefs and our expectations about the body can make us ill, but our beliefs and expectations about the body can also help us to become well. And so in that short chapter, what I was trying to do was explore different ways in which we can rethink some of the stories in which not only we become unwell, but also rethink some of the stories about how we might become better again. For example, you know, I've got many patients over the years who've come to me and said to me, I'm depressed, but they say, I've got that depression. And the use of words itself is really interesting. I've got depression. And that use of words 
can sometimes trap people into thinking that there isn't any hope, that they aren't going to be able to overcome their problems with low mood. And in that sort of situation, I've often got to guide the patient back towards a more hopeful perspective, which instead of saying, I've got that depression, is more like, I am depressed or I feel depressed. That saying, I feel depressed rather than I've got depression, does open up the possibility for amelioration, for gentle improvement, for being guided back into a new kind of balance. And that's an example of the stories that we tell ourselves, either trapping us into something or allowing the possibility of moving on. And so sometimes we have to think carefully about what stories we tell ourselves and how they might be actually unconsciously locking us into things that we don't need to be locked into. It, it does. And I feel like we can't separate out those stories from the wider issues that we were talking about of lack of access to care and support. Because if people do not have access to care, do not have access to hope, do not have access to the support that they need, it's very hard to tell yourself another story, especially if you've only seen decline. The last few episodes on my podcast have been with an amazing occupational therapist and we were talking about pacing and starting to slowly make changes no matter where you are with your chronic illness and one of the things after I had my first session with her I was almost angry (laughs) because I had felt that so many of the things that she had told me about how to almost reconceptualize and think about things in my life if I had been told that in the very early days of being diagnosed I think my entire trajectory would have been different because I would have had a different way of thinking about it and understanding it. But also, I know just personally, like things got really, really bad for me because I didn't have appropriate care. And as I got worse, I became more scared, more hopeless. And it became this vicious cycle that getting out of it has taken a really, really long time. And that's partly why I'm doing this podcast. And it's a it's a really difficult thing to balance because so many of these stories simply come because people aren't given adequate access. I keep, I keep saying adequate, but in my head, it should be exemplary and excellent. <laughs> but people aren't given the care and the support that they need for those stories. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And there's an interesting... Um facet to this discussion which I'd be I'd be curious to know what your occupational therapist thinks of which is something that I'm increasingly aware of the longer I've been practicing medicine which is that when I started out in medical school I would have an idea that for every condition there was a certain way that we had to approach it so there was a sort of formula almost that once you got the diagnosis right then this is what you say to the patient this is what you prescribe whether it be physiotherapy or occupational therapy or medications and then the patient will get better the longer i've been going in medicine i realized that a huge part of the skill of being a good ot or a good physio or a good doctor is gauging what kind of patient you've got in front of you what kind of thing do they need to hear what do they want to hear what are they capable of hearing so just as i've got some patients who see me purely as a kind of um, guardian of scientific knowledge i've got others who see me as just a conduit to specialists i've got others who see me as an arm around the shoulder and a gentle chat i've got others who see me as a kind of collaborative partner and If you try and be a sort of guardian of scientific knowledge to somebody who wants an arm around the shoulder, you're going to be the wrong kind of doctor and vice versa. When I hear about consultations that have gone really, really wrong, in the past, I've occasionally been tempted to think, oh, well, that's been uh, just an incompetent clinician. 
like they haven't been appropriately sensitive. And increasingly, I when I hear some of these stories now, I think, uh, actually, maybe they behaved in a way that would have worked for one patient or maybe worked for the patient that they saw before them in the clinic, but it didn't work at all for this patient. And so what they've failed in is adequately gauging what kind of consultation this needs to be in order to be effective. And, you know, and there are some rubbish doctors and nurses out there, but my experience is most of them are really highly committed, professional people trying their best in a resource-limited system. And they are usually trying their best, but they may often and regularly, I must do this, misjudge the way to approach a particular consultation, which is tragic, as you, you know, you've just outlined. If, if somebody gets set off on slightly the wrong trajectory right at the beginning, it can color their experience for months or years even. And so if I'm allowed a fourth wave of the magic wand, I would um, introduce into medical and nursing training much more this idea that a big part of good consultation skills is trying to gauge what kind of patient you've got in front of you and what kind of approach is going to be most helpful for them. Because I certainly think that the really effective nurses, the really effective doctors do this subconsciously or implicitly. And it's it would be great to teach it more as, a, as an aspect of medical care. If you live with a long-term condition and listening to this episode has given you a bit of a spark to think about reconceptualizing what recovery might look like for you, you might be wondering where on earth you even begin. I asked Dr. Francis for his recommendations. I've tried to distill an awful lot of different kinds of approaches to advice into this book, which is, we say, pretty short. And if I was to distill even that down, I would distill it to the last two or three pages of the book. And if I was to distill that even further down to three or four bullet points, I would say the first thing is to pay attention to the environment in which you're attempting to recover and try to do, to make it the best you can to optimize your environment and the everything that's around you. And the second thing would be to think about health, reconceptualize or try to find a way to imagine health much more as a balance uh, than some kind of extreme, because none of us are getting any younger. None of us are going to arrive at a state whereby we approach some sort of magnificent sunny uplands of health as described by the World Health Organization in that 1940s founding statement. Do you know, we're always between different kinds of states. The next thing I would say is that the body is always changing all the time. And where there is change, there's definitely hope. So sometimes people get stuck in a perspective on themselves and their body that's very static. And they think that, that everything's slowed down and is sort of stuck in the mud. But your body is ceaselessly changing. You know, all the cells of it are turning over. They're changing all the, even the calcium in your bones is swapping out for other calcium over the course of your life. You're not the same person as you were 10 years ago. And in that vision of the body as dynamic, there's always some kind of hope. And lastly, I would say that it's much more important to set achievable goals and stick to them. And don't worry too much about comparing with others. You know, comparisons can be so frustrating and can be the death of us, really, that, that we end up saying, oh, well, so-and-so got better from this in only six months. And why am I still struggling with it at nine months? But comparisons are just not helpful because everybody is different. So set achievable goals, little and often, every day. Uh, don't look too much to extremes. Just think of everything as a balance. Think about your environment. And yeah, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. 
As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what recovery can look like for me. And ultimately, I've realized it's not finding the complete absence of ill health, but it's about finding ways to understand my body and live as well as I can with my illnesses. On reflection, I think the biggest changes that occurred over the years have come down to having the support to be able to learn how to better manage my health. Only when I had that support was I able to recontextualize my story because I was seeing positive changes which then gave me more hope and belief. It's a challenging cycle and I know I'm one of the lucky ones. It's a big reason why I'm working on this podcast because there's so much information out there that doesn't get to patients. I'd highly recommend my movement series and my pacing series as great places to start thinking about teeny tiny steps that might help. Thank you so much to Dr. Gavin Francis for taking the time to chat with me. I'd highly recommend reading his book. It'll definitely give you some food for thought. I'll link it in the show notes if you're interested in buying and reading it for yourself. If you struggle with reading, I have a whole episode on how to read more with chronic illness, which I'll link as well. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Passenger Assistance App by TransReport. To book your assistance by app when travelling by train in the UK, you can download the Passenger Assistance app on iOS and Android. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to my new-ish restroom newsletter. Each week, I share what I like to call slow content about chronic illness. You can find out more at natashalitman.substack.com. Please rate and leave a review as that really helps new people find us and please share the episode on your social media and with anyone who you think would enjoy it. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Natasha Lippmann. And that's all from me. Thanks so much for joining me in the restroom. Next episode, we'll be exploring the bane of my existence, brain fog. Ta-ta for now.